Welcome to a special episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is what non-protocol status means for those considering independence. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on wealthmanagement.com, as well as iTunes and other resources. The focus of this series all along has been on educating advisors on what it means to be independent and actually what it takes to get from here to there. But the departure of Morgan Stanley and UBS from the Protocol for Broker Recruiting, or the Protocol, as it's most commonly known, has actually sent shockwaves through the industry. I thought it was important to get a perspective on the impact of non-protocol status for those considering independence. An advisor who sits at one of these now non-protocol firms described the feeling of waking up one morning and finding out, hey, the clocks have turned back and we're now living in East Berlin. So today, I want to take a step away from the headlines and zero in on the facts that will affect advisors as they move forward. That is to say, the impact of these changes on those who are looking to make a move and actually on those who have no intention of making a move right now. So many questions have left advisors feeling lost, concerned, and uncomfortable. What should you be doing now? What are your options? What if your firm leaves the protocol? So I've invited Sharon Ash, Chief Litigation Counsel at Hamburger Law Firm, to help answer some of these questions and to shed light on the real impact to advisors and what's next for advisor movement. Sharon, thank you so much for joining me today and what I hope will be an important and spirited conversation. Let's jump right in. In your opinion, Sharon, how will the non-protocol status of Morgan Stanley and UBS advisors now impact advisor movement away from those firms? Thank you, Mindy, for having me. Coming out of those firms, there's no question that transitions will look different. But from our perspective, even lumping those two firms together, yes, they both withdrew from the protocol, but no two transitions are identical, even at these two firms. Both of those firms, there are advisors sitting there that have agreements in place that are very different from the advisors sitting next to them. So at both firms, you may have some advisors who have the ability to buy their way out of non-solicit restrictions, even without the protocol. Some are covered by a state law where the agreements may not be enforced to the extent that they're written. And then some have categories of clients that are expressly carved out. But every single one of those situations you're going to have a unique set of facts and circumstances surrounding their situation uh, that's relevant to what their individual transition plan. So is the message that those Morgan Stanley and UBS and city advisors now are more stuck as a whole than their brethren at Merrill or Wells or any other firm that currently is part of protocol? I think that stuck would be a choice that they make. Remember what the protocol came out of was movement. 
And so even before the protocol with many of these same agreements that exist today, they were around pre-protocol and advisors were moving. The protocol was a, a conceived solution to that movement. So if someone perceives themselves as stuck, they're making a choice to be stuck. They're making a choice that they would rather stay than go. But there's always a way out. I love that. I would actually agree with that statement. So in your opinion, will we see less breakaway movement? Meaning, will we see less advisors going independent because there is more fear in a non-protocol world? Let's say right now, relative to Morgan and UBS, will additional fear cause less people to stay in employee land as opposed to going independent? Well, in the near term, I think you might. I think that uh, there will be some who are going to be naturally inclined to sit on the sidelines to some extent, to, to take a wait and see attitude, to see what experience others might have in leaving before them. But look, advisors are moving. There have been four or five cases filed by Morgan Stanley at this point that have gotten some press coverage. But those are not the only four or five advisors that have moved. Others have moved. So not every case is resulting in immediate litigation. You know, is Morgan Stanley policing advisors activity? Absolutely. Um, You know, but as far as, you know, how are certain advisors staying out of the news and out of court while others are, are hitting the headlines? Well, they're making choices based on their own personal decisions, tools that are available to them. And at the end of the day, You can sit on the sidelines, but what ultimately carries the day with whether a transition is successful or not is the client perception. Who do they have a relationship with, the firm or the advisor? And we're going to continue to have uh, a material impact on the outcome of a transition based upon that continued client perception. They're at the center of these movements. So if a client or an advisor's group of clients, entire book, feels loyal to the advisor, sees the relationship with the advisor and not the firm. What does that mean in general in terms of success of transition? The relationship, the stronger that it is between the advisor and the client, the more likely it is that that client is going to insist, regardless of what obstacles may lie ahead, that client will insist upon exercising their freedom of choice and maintaining a relationship with the advisor of their choosing. Got it. So what about the perhaps increased financial risk for a breakaway advisor, an advisor looking to leave what is now Morgan and UBS non-protocol firm and the notion of going independent without a deep pocketed firm behind them? Well, the increased financial risk bear any impact on the long-term and short-term amount of breakaway movement we see? Well, I think that financial risk and every element of risk has an impact on whether or not a particular advisor or team of advisors may decide to make a move or not, right? You see that in every element of this industry. So the potential that they will have to go a route that could result in some litigation risk, some legal fees, that's going to be part of their decision-making for sure. But advisors, 
you know, they have to be very careful not to read headlines that they see and, and assume that those same set of facts and circumstances and the same outcome would apply to their particular situation. They've got to do their due diligence. They've got to understand what their particular situation is. I mean, these moves are inevitably the most significant move that an advisor is making over the course of their career. And to even think that an advisor would make that decision based upon headlines that they read. I mean, that's like you deciding you're not going to go to a doctor when you have a symptom and instead you're just going to read about it in a paper or look it up on the internet. I mean, you don't diagnose that way, but an advisor should be concerned about the, the legal risks for certain, but they have to do their homework. They have to be part of a dialogue to understand what are the legal risks, what is the likely outcome, and then they can go ahead and make those decisions um, as to which risks they're willing to take on and which risks they're not willing to take on. So from where I sit, there seems to be a lot of advisors waiting on the sidelines, watching and waiting with bated breath to see if any of their other colleagues will hit the eject button first and what happens when they do. And you're right, we've read of four or five cases, mostly out of Morgan Stanley, for advisors that didn't necessarily have successful transitions. It makes sense that we are not reading about the successful ones. Those are the ones flying under the radar. But wondering what precedent there has been already, what we can garner from the moves that we've either read about or that you know of, successful and unsuccessful, that serve as a lesson for those waiting on the sidelines. And I guess I'm asking, in addition to generally, to how that impacts people thinking about going independent. Well, you know, in reading the headlines of those four or five lawsuits that have been filed by Morgan Stanley, um, and all but one so far, they've been successful in obtaining uh, what's known as a temporary restraining order, that dreaded order that can stop an advisor to some extent from affirmatively reaching out to their clients. But in every single one of those cases, Mindy, I read the accounts and then look at the legal filings and they're somewhat predictable. You can see facts in the initial papers filed by Morgan Stanley that really lead you to scratch your head and say, I wonder if someone that made these missteps actually knew they were making these missteps. Were these choices or were these mistakes? So as you have an advisor sitting on the sidelines reading these headlines, they should be digging deeper and not necessarily assuming that what they see in the headlines is going to be what they face. And, you know, an example of, of issues that we've seen, client data. When you talk to somebody in the industry and say that client data was emailed through the firm email to a private email address within hours or days of resigning. Anybody that looks at that says, well, of course you can't do that. But yet those are some of the facts that are coming out of these uh, out of these cases. And from where I sit, many of those cases would have wound up in with TROs, even in a protocol situation, that they were violations of protocol as well. Yeah, some of them, the protocol wouldn't not have even applied to the transition, even if the protocol were still in place from Morgan Stanley. Mm -hmm. Can you just give us a couple of ideas of, from a legal perspective, some of the strategies 
that you are using to counsel prospective breakaway advisors in a non-protocol transition? Have their documents if they can. Certainly the ideal scenario for us is to be able to examine the documents that these advisors actually signed. Absent having those documents available to us, we have certainly documents available from our own collection over the years that we've been doing this, our own database of documents based on timing and what have you. We can likely peg what they signed with some degree of certainty. However, it's a set of assumptions that you're left with in that type of scenario. So if they have the documents, they should look for them. That's what we'd want to have in the first instance. And they should realize the importance of that. Many times we'll speak to folks who will say they they don't have access to those documents. And it's not that they don't have access. It's just that it's difficult to find them. It's worth investing the time. This is your career. This is the business that you've built. And so we should have access to the most important document, which is that which governs your relationship. The importance of that document is because we can then look for those gaps in your documentation along the lines of of what I've described to you. Are all of your clients necessarily included within the scope of your restriction? Is your restriction even likely to be enforceable as written? So we have to do that in the weeds type of analysis. And ideally, I'd like to do that with the documents you actually signed. That said, no one should be going to their manager or HR or anyone else at their existing firms to say, hey, I'd like a copy of my employment agreements and everything that I signed with you. That's pretty much the brightest red of red flags that you could put up. So in terms of the strategies that we're using, it's closely examining what their rights are and then seeking for ways in which they can continue to work in this industry, which by all sides accounts is a relationship business. It's just a matter of who has the stronger relationship. Is it the client advisor or is the client and the firm that the advisor happens to work for? So let's presume it the advisor has a high net worth book of business. He services a relatively tight book of say 50 relationships. So it's an assumption, but the assumption is made that the relationship is clearly with the advisor. What would be an example of a strategy or two that that advisor who's confident about the relationship with client might deploy? So we have to be uh, cognizant that every single transition is going to be different We also have to be cognizant that a transition strategy that has worked for one advisor will not necessarily work for another advisor, though seemingly a same set of facts. We'd also not like to open up a playbook for the folks on the other side of the table as to how moves are happening. But if someone has a a small book by headcount along the lines of what you've described, Mindy, then I think that an advisor in that type of scenario could be likely more comfortable that their relationship is a solid one. The wirehouses refer to that as a sticky relationship by product. Advisors who actually have a relationship, however, will typically see that loyalty resulting in continued loyalty. 
Got it. Okay. No, that's very helpful. So what advice would you give then to say Merrill and Wells Fargo advisors, firms that the industry is watching to see if they are going to be next to pull out of protocol at some point, or advisors for that matter at any firm that is still in protocol, what advice would you give those advisors at what is now protocol firms, the possibility of being non-protocol at some point? What are the kind of things they can do now to prepare themselves, whether they are expecting to make a move or not? So I think the number one thing is due diligence. You know, we've had conversations over, uh, let's say, the months of October until now as news of the, the changes to the protocol were breaking, that there were some advisors who had begun a due diligence process, others who were placed in a position that they knew they didn't want to stay but had done no homework. And the more prepared you are, the more choices that you have. So what should they be doing now? Due diligence. They should be having those conversations, understanding what a move would look like for them, understanding what their options may be, and gaining some understanding as to what are the steps that you need to accomplish to be able to go independent. It's effectively, Mindy, packing a parachute, and you have the choice when the plane starts to go down, do you pull the ripcord or not? But if you don't have that parachute packed, you're just going to buckle your seat. I couldn't agree with you more. That's always been our philosophy and our counsel as well. Doesn't mean you're going to pull the ripcord, but it's just nice to know that you've got options. And when we go back to that word stuck, and I like how you referred that stuck is a choice. If you've done your due diligence and you've gotten a seat at the table in exploring other options, then you're never stuck or you're much less likely to be stuck. Right. I mean, I think that if there's one thing that every advisor should be taking away from the headlines, the protocol withdrawals, regardless of where they work, but particularly if they happen to work at a protocol member firm, is that there is no guarantee that things are going to stay the same. And absent regulatory intervention, the protocol is not necessarily going to be there forever. And their firm, even if it remains, the firm may not be a member forever. Absolutely agreed. Sharon, thank you so much for joining me today. This was really helpful. Thanks so much for having me. And it's always a pleasure, Mindy. agree that was a really powerful view of where things are at, and there were a few especially important takeaways. First, while there are certainly risks inherent in a non-protocol move, just like there are risks inherent in any move, and a non-protocol advisor will need to be well-educated about those risks and his options, an advisor is never stuck unless he chooses to be. The second point is that the client is at the epicenter of it all. And where there is a deep relationship between the advisor and the client, the client will exercise his right to choose between advisor and firm, making for a successful transition and almost complete portability for the advisor. Until next time, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com and click on the tools and resources link for some valuable content. 
If you're not a recipient of our weekly email, we call Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have any specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are always handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. I thank you for listening. I also want to thank wealthmanagement.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.